you're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Josh Shellick and Colin White, portfolio managers with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth. Welcome to a brand new session. Uh, we have a name jet. Uh, we can call it quick hitters, the speed round. So Josh and I have uh, reactions when we read things in the news. So we thought that maybe this is worth capturing a little bit. So we're going to play a little game where we throw random headlines at each other to get a raw response of how we react to news when we read it in the wild. So, you know, uh, this, this should be a little bit of fun, eh, Josh? Yeah, the best name I've come up with so far is, is headline hunting with Colin and Josh. I think we can do better. So work in progress. Any of our listeners have any suggestions, send it our way. We'll consider it. Excellent. So Josh, do you want to throw the first pitch? Yeah, here's a good one for you, Colin. Why making more money won't solve your financial problems. What do you think? <laughs> well, there's a truism for you that people don't like to face. Where did your head go when you read that one? I think it's not as obvious. A lot of people, I, I think they approach it as, well, if I'm making more money, if my salary goes up 10%, 20%, whatever it is, then I'm going to be in a much better financial position without a doubt. But there's a lot more that goes into it than that. And, and I just think it's such a, a great representation of, of what our business is. You need to have some financial management skills. You need to be able to live within your means. You need to be able to save. You need to be able to invest properly. It doesn't matter how much money you can make. If you can't do these other fundamental things, you're, you're lost. You're done for. So this, this is fantastic because being the age that I am and having had the relationships I've had over time, this is as obvious as the nose on my face. I've got a very close friend who in university routinely spent 10% more than what he made. And guess what? He still spends 10% more than what he has. I have watched over my life that happen over and over and over again. So. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think we've seen this, this type of idea go, go wrong so many times. All right, Josh, I want to give you one. This goes into a category of headlines that really crawls under my skin for a very particular reason. I'm kind of curious as to whether your skin starts to crawl when I throw this at you. Uh, I grabbed this off of a website. One of those ones is trying to get you to click on something, right? So as the S&P approaches its all-time high, brace for a violent move. Yeah, this, this, so this is just about as stupid as I get. Uh, I'll, I'll, and I'll, I'll put my, my foot on that firmly. The S&P 500 being in an all-time high has no bearing on the volatility of the S&P 500. Let me say that. Do you know that markets about 25% of the time are reaching an all-time high? So that, that, that means a couple things. First, one out of every four days, we're hitting a new all-time high, historically speaking. So can you say that brace for more volatility one out of every four days? That seems stupid to me. The other thing that you should take from that is three out of four days, we're not going to be at an all-time high. So you're going to be in a constant state of discontent because the market was higher on a previous day. Three out of every four times. So stupid, move on. <laughs> But, but see, you're going to have to sign on, you know, to find out what violent move happened, you know, because they didn't specify up or down. It's going to be violent. Ooh, I don't want violent. <laughs> it's going to be a violent move. <laughs> yeah, ca capture the attention for sure. Here's one where we've been talking about this uh, a little bit before. 
about CPP. So the headline here, the runaway costs, ill-defined risks, and mediocre returns of CPP's investment strategy. <laughs> well, those are a lot of uh, very vivid words being used to describe something that is not really simple at all. You know, again, there's such a nuance to determining whether or not an investment strategy is, is useful or not. We spend a lot of our waking time working on the nuances. And none, and none of those words, I think, appear in any of our meetings. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, Josh, because you're in the same meetings I'm in. That's not how we describe anything. What were the, read that to me again. Because there, was a lot of, there was a lot of imagery there. The runaway costs, ill-defined risks, and mediocre returns of CPP's investment strategy. I see. So they want well-defined risks and an exemplary uh, rate of return that they, they haven't defined. Uh, that, that, that's fascinating. Um, I wouldn't put a lot of credence to what came next. Was the article any good? It, you know what? It's not bad. They bring up some valid points. Costs have raised exponentially over the last 20 years uh, there with, within the fund itself. But I think the, the part that I struggle with the most is they go on to say that CPP has only outperformed its benchmark by half a percentage point per year over the last 15 years. That's exceptional. So that is very, very good. Yes, they may be spending a little bit more money to get there, but if they are beating a true benchmark, and I don't know how true that benchmark is, but if they are beating a true benchmark by half a percent per year, that's very, very good and probably puts them in the top 10% of investment managers on the planet. But I mean, even that, you know, they're beating their benchmark. You and I know how difficult it is and how, how easy it is to pick different benchmarks that are arguably more or less relevant. It's not an, it's always gets presented as an absolute science. They beat their benchmark. Okay, well, what benchmark was it? Well, do you name any benchmark you want to pick? It's like, well, that's kind of okay, but that's maybe not, you know, there's other benchmarks you could choose that might, you know, be more illuminative to, to the situation. It's not cut and dry. Like people read that as if it's, well, gravity you know, is X and, you know, the rate of acceleration is nine point meters per second per second. And it's not a mathematical calculation that's rooted in physics. It's something that's open to a lot of interpretation, but it always gets trotted out as, well, it's this over the index or this under the index. It's not that simple. Stop it. Yeah, that's right. Um, here's one for you, Josh, and this is actually a, a little bit topical to some of the stuff we've been recording recently. Another key U.S. inflation gauge surges in April and hits 13-year high. Yeah, <laughs> so this is another one where they're really cherry-picking a stack to tell a story, <laughs> and th this is completely true. This is completely true, first of all, right? So CPI inflation gauges are hitting highs right now. And, and highs when you look back for the last 10, 15 years or so, whatever time frame you're looking at. Now, the real reason we're hitting these highs is because last year, a year ago, 12 months ago, which I'm assuming is how they're measuring this, this inflation, we had deflation. We had costs cratering around the world because people couldn't spend any money. They were out of work, so they didn't have any money to spend. So last year, 12 months ago, costs cratered. 12 months later, when you're measuring inflation year over year, yeah, costs have gone up. And there's maybe a little bit more to this than, than just that base effect that I'm talking about, because we have truly seen some costs go up, but there are some real reasons why the inflation gauges are high. And most professionals that I'm listening to right now are saying this is a transitory thing. 
once we get through this this period of time, things should start to normalize a little bit. And when we're talking about highs over the last 13 years, the last 13 years have seen extremely low inflation, under 2% on average over that period of time. So we could be hitting 3% right now, and yeah, that would be high for the last 13 years, but if you look at history over the last 100 years, not so much. Yeah, see, my mind just spins to the fact is like this is one gauge. How many gauges on inflation are there? Like hundreds, thousands? <laughs> you know, so lot. they found, I'll, I'll guarantee you that they went fishing. They found the one that was the most egregious, the one that had the biggest absolute and relative difference. And that's what they wrote about. That right. is not representative of everything that's going on. It's, you know, it's inflation porn. You know, it's, 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 it's finding the, the most interesting thing and, you know, focusing on that to the exclusion of any meaningful conclusion. Right. So I'll, I'll change gears a bit here. Uh, here's a headline for you. Once a Canadian startup darling, flexible workspace provider Breather sells most assets for $3 million. <laughs> Breather? Breather. Never heard of it. It's, it's not about the company. It's about the story. Oh, I know, but they're they're describing it as some kind of a darling, and I I thought I knew all the good-looking investments out there. Yeah, well, so when they say darling, it, it did attract 150 million dollars of of funding from venture capital firms at one point. Yeah, so there's there something that was really fatty and popular, and it's dying. Huh? Color me surprised. Right. So, the point I I wanted to make with this is for every. Google or Netflix out there, you maybe have 10, 20, probably more, maybe 100 of these companies that receive millions of dollars of funding and they end up worth nothing. So this is a company here, got $150 million of capital at some point, probably had more along the way and just sold its assets for $3 million. That's a pretty big loss. It's funny, I had this question just this week, somebody asked us if we did any work in the venture capital space, no. to which I answered no, you know, or that, that's not our, that's not in our wheelhouse for exactly this kind of reason. It's the, the, the percentage chance of, of winning at it is so small and vast majority of them end in this way. And I don't want to call you and tell you your money's gone. Uh, I never want to make that phone call. So I, I don't ever want to play a game where that's a potential outcome. So, yeah. Yeah, the venture capital space is it's a fascinating space, but really you need to be you need to be very very plugged into Silicon Valley or something like that to really get good opportunities come across your desk. And if you're investing in a venture capital fund of some sort, you're generally tying your money up for many many years before yeah. you're going to get your money out. You know, five, I'm talking five or ten years before you can see a dime of that money. Uh, and like you said it's a real boomer bust type of prospect. You're, you're going to have some that go up 10 times and you're going to have a lot that end up completely worthless. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a, a tough space and not for the majority of our clientele, that's for sure. Well, no, and you bring up a good point. You know, and this actually is a point that carries over into the markets in general. Like the truly exceptional opportunities don't make it to the street. Like if, if you've got an exceptional opportunity that's got an exceptional rate of return, and you got a choice between going to the street and you know attracting money from five or six hundred people, or making one phone call. Yeah, you make the one phone call if you know, the CPPIB is going to give you the money. Okay, you now one phone call they give me the money. Tap tap, I can go on with my day. And you know a lot of deals get done that way. And even the mutual fund managers are on speed dial for a lot of places. I need a hundred million bucks. What are my terms? Here are the terms. Great, I'll take it. It's only when those phone calls don't work that it ends up going down to the retail level. So, you know, that's a real thing. 
Yeah, I'm going to change gears completely. I, I, I want to I want to see where you go with this, Josh, because this was buried. I had to go digging you know, down into the second and third web page to get to this gem. CRTC backtracks on wholesale internet rates, reverts to 2016 levels. <laughs> so what does that mean? Give me some context. I don't know what the internet rates were in 2016. I don't know what they were going to be today. Now see that. Now see this. This is perfect because this is real news. Now, you know that Canada has some of the highest costs for telecommunications in the world. We're constantly on the top of every list, and it's constantly an issue. And, you know, there's a process that, that's gone through the bureaucratic system to try to address this in some shape or form. So progress was made. They announced a deal that they were going to cut the reseller rates so that, again, we could have better pricing on Internet services and telecommunications in Canada. That's real progress. That's news. And on the third page of the business section is this little gem. Oh, yeah, no, we, we decided not to do that. This belongs on the first page where the other headlines that we've been reading are because this is real news. This is something people should pay attention to. This is something that really matters. Not that it's another high day in the S&P 500, but it's just so boring and nobody sees it in context. It's like, uh, CRTC, oh, I don't even know what that is. Next. You know, <laughs> I, I want something that's going to boom or soar or plummet. Yeah, it's not not alarmist enough to get those eyeballs, but this one, I've constantly struggled with this because the politicians and government in Canada keep saying, well, we want more competition in the telecom space. Hopefully we'll, we'll push down prices with more competition, but they introduce these new players and the players can't be profitable. Or, I, and I don't know if this is a predatory thing where Rogers, Bell, Telus are too dominant that they're they're not giving up their their corners on the street or what it is, but you can't. They, they seem to be trying to introduce these smaller players and and they're just not profitable. So on the one hand, it's like okay, I I understand the ideas behind trying to lower these costs for these things, but on the other hand, you also need the private enterprise to be profitable for it to be working in a sustainable way. So I, I don't know which side of the fence I fall on this one. Well, it's just that this is a nuanced issue. And I, and I do think that there's some merit to taking a look at the absolute cost level. And if it is indeed high, trying to address that in some meaningful form. That's a meaningful conversation. But it happens in Canada because Canada's got a lot of oligopolies. And there's, there's companies and industries that are tightly controlled. And they're going to do nefarious things to make it more difficult for upstarts to get into their space. I mean, that's just the nature of running a business. You know, I was talking with a technology provider here recently who's one of the aggregators where they, you know, there's a service where you can plug your information in and it brings together all your bank account information, all of your investment information, and gives it to you in a usable, like one of those services is out there. I think Mint was doing that kind of thing. But, you know, in talking to them, they said the problem is, is that every time they get it all dialed, then major institutions go and change their systems just a little bit so that it doesn't work. And that's the sole purpose of the change, you know, so that they're constantly making it more difficult for the upstarts to do something which truly has value. I think for the average person out there to have the ability to have an aggregator that brings together all your financial world in one spot so you can see and understand it, that's very beneficial. There should be a good business model there. But all the established players are, well, if all your money was with us, you, we'll aggregate it for you. 
So they're not going to make it easy for people to do that. So again, it's it's one of those ones that's in the weeds. It's a friction in the system. It, it prevents the system from really being as efficient as it could be, but it's largely invisible. So here's an article for you that not necessarily skin crawl worthy, but maybe cringe a little bit, maybe make you a little bit uncomfortable, maybe make you shake your head. Insider report, billionaire businessman invests $3 million in this stock that recently hit a record high. Inside of what? <laughs> they throw out phrases like that, like it means something. That that phrase means nothing, like inside his house, inside his cottage, like was he like an actual insider to an industry? And a billionaire, that, that, is that supposed to give him credibility? Did he sell an NFT for a billion dollars? That made him a billionaire and therefore we should follow what he does next? Oh, you're right. That would, that's, yeah, every level. Yeah. My main point here, you're not a billionaire. Don't try to invest like one. <laughs> that's another good point to make. That's like taking dating advice from Brad Pitt, right? It's like, no, I walk into the room. I need a different plan than Brad because I'm not going to get the same kind of reception he gets when he walks in a room. Yeah, that's right. Uh, oh, I do have another one. Hey, Josh, this 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 one's more up your alley. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch this one right into your wheelhouse. Is yeah, it using all those all those big words that you like to throw around, all those big young topics. Bitcoin, GameStop, and NIO bets turned this flight attendant into a millionaire. Now he's <laughs> now he's wagering it all in one final push to three million. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I had a, an article on my list that was very similar to this as well. Not not the same thing. It was and it, it was talking about the guy who became a billionaire investing in SaaS coin, which I don't even know what SaaS coin is, but uh, it's got to be got to be worth a lot these days. There are hundreds, thousands, I don't know, maybe tens of thousands of stories out there of people going from rags to riches, investing in one thing or the other. The, the person that bought Microsoft in the 80s or the person that bought Apple in 2000. That doesn't make it easy to do. That doesn't make it the common thing. That doesn't mean that that can be you. These people got incredibly lucky or they did something that was incredibly innovative. And these are sort of one in 10 million, one in 100 million types of events. That doesn't mean that you can go out and find the next Apple or find the next Microsoft or find the next SaaS coin or whatever the hell it is. So people need to stop trying to do this because what they're ending up doing is they're losing all this money betting on something stupid. And uh, it's not good, not, not good for them all the time. There was a, a mathematician that spoke at a conference one time. And yes, hang, hang with me for this one because it's actually a good story. We had this kind of conversation and he said, well, it's like it. 64,000 people and they all flip a coin. Anybody who flips a heads gets to stay. And you keep doing that. If you flip heads, you get to stay. Well, after a while, mathematically, half of each time, there's gonna be half of it heads, right? So after a while, you got like 16 times in a row, somebody's flipped heads. And it's like, oh my God, you flip heads every time. You put a microphone in front of them and say, how do you do it? Where did you go to school? What did you have for breakfast? It's like, no, <laughs> none of that mattered. It was statistically guaranteed that this was going to happen because your sample size was large enough and the way odds work is it's the same every iteration. Yeah, he's not whole, oh, I flip it with my left hand. Ooh, left hand flips more often come up heads. No, no, it isn't. It's, it's not that at all. But so much of our industry is about that. There has to be a secret. No, there doesn't. Like, there really, really doesn't have to be a secret. Sometimes it's just dumb luck. Now, 
hopes and prayers, I guess, is a strategy. Yeah, seven billion people in the world. Some of them are going to get lucky sometimes, and there's going to be these stories popping up. That doesn't mean that you should try to replicate it to get wealthy yourself. There, there has to be something meaningful in the equation for sure. Yeah, here's one that I know that drives you crazy, so I'm looking forward <laughs> to getting your response. Where to invest a hundred thousand dollars oh, in Asia right gosh. now? <laughs> <laughs> Ah, you're right. Yeah, I actually had a couple of these on my list. I took them off because I get too wound up. But there's, there's no one right thing for you. Ah, uh, where where you should put your money is dependent on where you are. Like the, you start there. You don't start with, well, this is the one place that billionaires are investing. No, stop it. Take a look at your own situation. And again, we and it's it's funny. We get that question all the time, and the industry kind of caters to it because you you tune into any of the news shows and friends of ours who appear on on the, the the talking head shows is like, what are the top five dividend stocks in Canada today? Okay, here are my top five picks. But again, that is not relevant to anything. If your situation is unique. Your risk profile is unique, and once you do that, then you create a universe of things you should go look at. Don't ever read the. I tell you what. Here's a rule. If that's if that's the headline, never read the article. It's never any good to you. It's it's absolutely dangerous. Should not do it. Colin, here here's one where you may be able to provide a little bit of actual planning advice for people. So the headline, a cottage succession plan, is more important than you think. Well, you know what? That is a very valid statement uh, because it's not something that's often thought of. Because there are very specific tax rules. <laughs> the other thing. It's funny, I'd be interested to see where the article went because there would be the whole human side of things where I'm gonna leave the cottage to my six kids, four of whom live in Australia. So there's a whole social aspect of what are you seriously doing? Do the kids want the cottage again, which is something that often gets ignored in families is have you talked to them about how much they care for the cottage or whether it was a scene of a childhood trauma that you don't remember that they never ever want to go back to. But then there's the tax aspect of things. So you could do that article could be completely on the tax planning aspect of things, which again is a little bit fungible because year over year you can see changes in the way tax treatments are handled, but it is something to be aware of along the way, especially with the extreme valuations being placed on a lot of these properties right now. That cottage that you picked up that is a nice place to go might be one of the better investments you've made in the last five years. And there's there's tax consequences to that. Um, so yeah, that 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 is one that I would read that article. There you go. Let's let's start rating them. I would read that article. Or oh God, no. So okay. yes, that, that's a readable article. Yeah, that, I guess that's their scale. Readable to oh God, no. Stay away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, sol solid article. I did touch on some of the aspects of of tax planning surrounding that and and family planning around it too. Uh, a lot of people approach this and just think, well, you know, I'll throw my kid, my children as joint owners on my cottage property. And that opens up a whole can of worms that uh, we don't have time to get into now, but uh, definitely a lot to think about when you're doing that planning. Well, no, so you leave, you leave it to three kids. One of them gets a divorce. One of them loses his job. And the third one has a little bit of money, but it's kind of stretched. And they're trying to figure out who's going to pay for and maintain the cottage. Discuss. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be a long discussion or a very short one, depending on how it goes. So similar financial planning question here, and you're more qualified to comment on this one than I am. You are a parent. Wealthy parents face delicate balance when passing their money onto their children, especially the wayward ones. 
So I, I read a good quote recently that's again attributed to to, to Saint Warren. Uh, there's so many good quotes that are attributed to him that I'm pretty sure he never said, but the sentiment in this is actually very good. You should give your kids enough money that they can do anything, but not enough money that they can do nothing. Because again, I've I've watched this happen uh, before. I had children. I was involved with sports and coaching and kids, so I've seen a lot of people go from being children to adults and watch the journey and done some reading on the sociological side of things. There's an inverse correlation, meaning they move in two different directions between the amount of money given a generation and what they accumulate. And they, you know, they studied the twins, and there's lots of work that's gone into this to make those studies meaningful. Because again, if things are easy, you're not as motivated. It's the human condition. It's, you're not as motivated to to make something of yourself or make any kind of tough decisions that'll lead to a better place. And to be a fully functioning adult walking around this planet as a contributing member, you have to be able to make tough decisions. And um, yeah, that that that's a real thing. It is delicate, and you can do everything right, but then things from outside of of the equation can affect things: bad relationship, you know, health issues, uh, you know, unfortunate career turn for somebody who's like, you know, right now, if you've got a child who's made a lot of money working in the hospitality industry. They've had a hard year, so that that may have changed a plan that you had to you know, be supportive or using tough love. But you'll figure that all out as time goes by, Josh. Yeah, uh, a couple of points that the article made was to have conversations on a regular basis and discussions with with your children about this stuff and try to teach them the skills that they're going to need to to manage the money prudently on their own or you know manage themselves uh, prudently on their own if there's no money uh, being passed on. So I think all, all good advice there. And if I can raise to Warren Buffett status at some point and people are, are quoting me for things that I didn't say that sound really smart, I'll be a really happy man one day. That is a special, you know, ascension to a mountaintop that, uh, and, and again, it's you know, well, it's, it's it's part of the, the the memes online. Like they'll take a picture of uh, you know Einstein or something and throw a quote on top of it, and you think it came from him. Well, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. That's how it's presented to the world, and if it gets repeated enough, people then begin to believe it. So hey, thanks for for joining us for this little experiment. Um, you know, we're we're always open to feedback, and uh, we're we're going to work to to find the most interesting headlines for our, for our next edition. And I think that based on this experience, we'll probably go with the read, don't read uh, rating uh, on the headlines. What do you think, Josh? Can we can we pass judgment like that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think articles fall anywhere in the middle. They're either readable or you should avoid them at all costs. So that, that's probably a good scale, just black and white. We'll keep it that way. There you go. So, hey, there's there's going to be the headline for the next one, read or don't read with, with Josh and Colin. So stay tuned for the next edition. This information has been prepared by White LeBlanc Wealth Planners, who is a portfolio manager for IA Private Wealth. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of IA Private Wealth Inc. IA Private Wealth Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. IA Private Wealth is a trademark and business name under which IA Private Wealth Inc. operates.
Based on observation, it seems that the time an investor is most likely to move his or her portfolio to a new advisor is when the old advisor dies. Let us go on record as saying that having a pulse is not a great reason to trust someone with your entire financial future. Stop putting your life in the hands of stillbreathingwealthplanners.com and call us.